0: You are listening to the Healing Birth with Carla podcast and I'm your host Carla Sargent. For the past decade I've been working in the field of birth trauma support and education, utilizing my background in midwifery and teaching and putting my passion for story sharing to good use. This podcast seeks to dispel common myths surrounding birth trauma and what it takes to heal. Each week we'll be spending an insightful and inspiring hour together listening to the stories of people who have journeyed from trauma to healing, and discussing the insights of birth keepers who support others to heal. Whether you're new to the world of birth, a long-time parent, or someone who has an insatiable appetite for all things birth-related, this podcast offers hope and love, guidance and peace, as together we explore how healing our earth begins with healing birth. But before we grace your ears with today's episode, I'm going to take this opportunity to say that if you're inspired to heal with me, or to train with me, or if you have a healing story that you'd like to share on my podcast, reach out to me via my website, healingbirth.co.nz. As humans, we are also mammals, and like all other mammals, evolution has ensured that we are well-equipped to birth in safe and rewarding ways, with a very rare need for outside interference. In fact, disturbing our innate birth design in the countless ways us humans do often creates a lot more difficulties and harm than safety. Today's podcast guest, Lindsay Askins, knows a lot about mammalian birth. She shares with us how her decade-long experiences of vet tech, witnessing untold births of horses and other mammals, led her to understand that birthing at home without a midwife in attendance was going to be the safest way to birth her first baby, a profoundly life-changing and positive experience for her. We dive into some great conversations about mammalian biology, about the mind-body connection, about how disturbing a woman's birth and creating fear in the birth space can lead to all sorts of complications, including damage to the mother-baby bond, and about the needless trauma that is created due to over-medicalisation and obstetric violence. Hear about the Exposing the Silence project that Lindsay co-founded with Kristen Pascucci from Birth Monopoly, and about the Birth Like a Mammal business that Lindsay now runs. She's a juicy and informative podcast episode, folks. Welcome, Lindsay, to the podcast. It's really neat to have you here today and chat to you across the screen. You're all the way over in, I've forgotten, somewhere in the state. Arizona, Arizona, of course, Arizona. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, And this is our first meeting, but, you know, I've followed a bit of your work online. I know a bit about past projects, that, well, present projects, but that you were really involved with. Uh, which we'll talk more about today. Um, so let's just get into it. And I would love for you to start this off with just sharing with us a, an overview of your own birthing history and what drove you to uh, delve into the world of birth week.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me. I just remember when I first saw your Instagram, I was like, Ooh, I need to get to know this woman. (laughs) I think, didn't I send you a DM? And I was like, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) you did. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I really appreciate what you're doing first and foremost. So I think it's really important. And I get really excited when I find, I think I said this to you initially, when I find other people that kind of get it. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some dots there within the world of like birth trauma and healing from that and why it's even happening that aren't getting connected. So. I appreciate it when I find people that are connecting the dots. <laughs> yeah. The feeling is That'd so be- mutual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um so birthing history. Yikes. So I like to always start this now 10 years ago when I told this story I I didn't tell this story. Um I really kind of like um hid maybe my baby's my first baby's birth story. I didn't I felt like sometimes when I shared it there was a lot of backlash or Uh, judgment. And I'm sure you could say that about any type of of birth you experience. But I think from where I was coming from back then at the time in advocacy work, I just kind of didn't talk about it. Anyway, now I'm at a point where I think it's really important that I talk about it because it really is why I'm where I'm at now. So my first pregnancy was very, very, very unplanned, like very unplanned. And I know a lot of people say that, but I literally remember looking at the pregnancy stick and was like, well, shit, what am I going to do now? Like, it just was like, I didn't know anything about any, I didn't know any of it. Um, I'm married to a man in the military and he was actually on his first deployment when I found out I was pregnant. So he came back when I was over seven months pregnant, like, he missed most of it. Um, so anyway, long story short, my sister had had a home birth a year before. Um, she had, uh, was in a state in America that now home, midwifery legal, but at the time it was quote illegal. And my father is an MD. So we all had a lot of (laughs) preconceived ignorant perspectives about this woman. And we actually referred to her as the witch doctor, which is so condescending and horrible, but like, we were just, we were so ignorant. We didn't know what midwives were. We didn't know their level of expertise. My dad just assumed she had no idea what he was doing. He's a cardiologist by the way. And he's like, well, I've been to 60 deliveries. I'm like, yeah, but that was like 40 years ago when you are a cardiologist, but you know what I mean? Just like that perspective that we're, we don't know anything about midwives. So anyway, she had a long labor and now looking back, I think it's because we were all there with our crappy energy and I really think we were slowing her down. So now that I know what I know about mammalian birth and how that works, I think we were very much hindering her progress at the time. None of us realized that I'm sure the midwife did though. (laughs) So she had a baby. Um, almost exactly the day, a month later, I got pregnant after I'd been at that birth no, and I was not planned. And it took me a little bit to figure out that I was pregnant. So about six months into my pregnancy, my sister would kind of drop little seeds here and there, you know, cause she'd already kind of done her research and she already knew about obstetrics. And I just Googled epidural one day and I was like, no, oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't want that. That looks terrible. That's terrifying. I was terrified. Like, I don't want that in my body. What if they mess it up? No, no, like it was the needle and like where it goes. And I was like, nope. So that was like just the beginning of the rabbit hole that landed me into having, I hate all the labels we use, but like, it was just my sister, my 10 month old niece by then. And my husband and I, when my first baby was born, it was just us and it was super low key and it was super primal and it was super in alignment with mammalian biology. And it changed my life. Like how I eat, how I live, how I work, how I see parenting, especially in America, like it just you know it it pulls the the veil off right like now you're like oh oh like there's just all these things so that that's that was kind of how that all came to be
0: can i ask did your sister's birth home birth with a midwife um go to plan you said it was a long labor but presumably she birthed at home and that Uh, surely influenced um you know something within you around when you found yourself pregnant like gave you some idea of how birth can look um and but then you said you you birthed unassisted so you just had your sister your husband yourself there um which is quite a big jump I imagine for especially for somebody who clearly doesn't know much about birth you know you you said you know like googling epidural for the first time like you know um so so I'm interested in what why why you chose birth without a midwife and attendance and how you came to that because it's a, a pretty um bold thing to do in a culture that says Birth is inherently dangerous. I mean, you've got a doctor for a father who's, you know, is spouting these um this kind of rhetoric um within your family home as you're growing up, no doubt. So mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm I'm intrigued.
1: How did you prepare? <laughs> to be fair, my dad is a pretty low-key doctor, and we never went to the doctor growing up. And we could be like growing a tumor on our arm, and he'd be like, ah, it'll buff. You know, he was just very <laughs> low-key. But, you know, we didn't take a lot of meds. My mom didn't put us on antibiotics. We didn't, you know, we we literally went there if someone broke a bone or needed stitches. It was like, what doctors are for? So I just want to disclaimer, give my dad a little credit. Awesome. Um, Yeah, these are <laughs> really good questions. Uh, so this is kind of where the birth like a mammal part comes in is I had this whole um, educational background and experience and history working with horses and breeding horses. And I was a vet tech for 10 years. So I had witnessed mammalian birth trillions of times just with dogs and cats and horses and goats and sheep and pigs like farm animals. Um, so when I, when I went down the Google rabbit hole and was learning about, um, you know, electronic fetal monitoring and the, the scalp monitor, like, and inductions, like that was one that really threw me. I was like, We don't induce animals. Like, why are we? So I started learning all these things that like no veterinarian is doing. We're not doing that with animals, with these really million dollar thoroughbred race horses. No one's doing that because they understand that it introduces risk. And you don't want to introduce risk when you got a million something dollars on the line with a horse. So that was in my brain. And then my sister's labor was 49 hours. Bless her heart. She had an OP baby and it was long, but it was fine. And I was like, okay. And then I just noticed, like, we weren't there when she had the baby. We were all on the same farm. She was living on a farm in Kentucky. So we were, like, at the main house, and she was, like, in her house. Um, But we all went over there. I don't really really remember. Like, hours later, after the baby was born, both grandparents were there. Um, And it was just so calm and peaceful, right? Like, she was just in her house her baby was sleep. There just wasn't all that crap you see on TV and in the movies. And so I think that also kind of stuck with me. I don't think I picked up on that like really specifically in the moment, like when I was there, but I would reflect on it, how different the energy felt and how calm and like just peaceful it was. And you just don't see that in hospital birth. You know, I'd visited some friends in the hospital if they had babies and stuff, and it was just very different. Um, And then something else I feel like kind of played into that is my whole life, I've been really protective of my Autonomy and like even of my body, like I wasn't very promiscuous when I was young, and the idea that I would allow strangers to touch me or like view my body, like that didn't sound cool at all. Like I wasn't into that. I'm the girl in the like since you have midwifery experience. I'm the girl in the bathroom that shuts the door and I don't want to talk to anybody. Like don't touch me, don't talk to me. Like I'm I'm being primal. So I think that I think there was a lot of factors, but yes, my sister's birth and she's younger than me, I should say, she's five years younger than me. So it was my little sister. And I'm like, well, if she can do this, I can do this. And she, she really did. She left, she planted a lot of seeds. She would say a lot of things like, well, you might just want to make sure you find a midwife. You know, it's like, I was seeing a CNM and, um, which was still kind of clinical, but it was better than she kind of steered me a little bit. And then I just started reading and that's kind of how that, how that came to be. But you're right. It was a big leap. And I should also note that my dad had a lot of, both of my parents had a lot of comments at my niece's birth that this was back in 2011 and everybody was not supportive. Everybody was critical. Everybody was scared. It was the typical, like she's insane with this witch doctor on this farm. Like, what is she doing? Like we had bad energy. So I did do a 180. And then the same thing, I didn't, so I didn't tell my parents, I didn't tell anybody that we were having the baby at home. We didn't tell my my husband's parents. We told nobody. And my husband, he's in the military, like A plus B equals C, right? You don't deviate from the box, stay in the box. And he had volunteer like EMS training, like back when he was in high school or whatever. So he's like, wait, no, this is like a scary thing. And we need clinical help and blah, blah, blah. So he drug me to the childbirth education class at the hospital. Actually in the same town, we lived in the same town back then. And I had to leave like 3 times during the class and go cry in the bathroom because it was so horrifying. Yeah. You know, they talked about uh, episiotomies and they talked about the I was really hung up on the the scalp monitor, the fetal scalp monitor. Like that is insane. Um just all the things and then you know like taking the baby away and like cutting the cord too fast and all these things and I was like this is crazy. Like what are we None of it was like what we did with horses. So I just remember we left that childbirth education class and he, I was like 35 weeks or something like that. And he took my hand in the parking lot. Remember he'd been gone. He'd only been home for like a month at this point. And he goes, we're having this baby at the house, aren't we? And I was like, (laughs) yep, (laughs) I'm not going in there. (laughs) Um, and this hospital is particularly terrible. Like most of this town agrees. Most people here, if they have the means and resources, they go to San Diego or Phoenix for medical care. Like it's not, it's not great. So there's that. Um and then you said, "Oh, unassisted." So because of that, we live in this tiny town. There's there's no mid back then. Um the laws have changed, but back then I believe so Arizona does not allow CNMs, do they? Yes, they do. Arizona allows CNMs to t- attend home births. Um but none of them would do it here at the time. And there's no CPMs here still. So my options were to find somebody out of Phoenix because going to San Diego is weird because then crossing state lines and their licensing and all that. So I tried, I I was 36, 37 weeks and I called some midwives and they were like, yeah, uh, we're booked. You know, like they were like, what, why are you calling me right now? So it was like alone at home or that scary hospital. So we, we picked alone at home and it was the best decision of my whole life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's amazing. Like, and I think especially, um, given that you didn't know other people who were doing this this was this was like you took what you knew from your own personal experience of birth which was mammalian birth or horses birthing um Mm -hmm. other mammals birthing and you applied it to like the realities of um you know modern day birthing and and you know western culture um and when hey you know a plus b does not equal c you know like this is not fitting this is not matching what I understand birth to be and yeah I'm a human but I'm a mammal and why would why would we be doing these things to humans that are so not necessary for mammals mm-hmm. and just I just love the kind of, you know, um, just raw like grassroots kind of like, (laughs) it's just birth.
1: (laughs) It's just birth. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember, I still think this now, but I remember going, I feel like a veterinarian would be more suited to handle a woman having a baby than any of these OBs. Like the knowledge the veterinarian has, because they've seen true mammalian birth and like almost all the obstetricians have not, you know, even, even the the nurse midwives in hospitals, most of them have never seen a mammalian birth.
0: Yeah. Right. So. It's, it's appalling. I mean, here in New Zealand, you know, home birth is an option. We do have, um, you know, it's all funded by the government and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So if you want a home birth midwife and to birth at home, that doesn't cost you extra or anything like that. Um, and Yet, you know, having been through the midwifery system myself, because I was a midwife, um, and I wanted as much experience with home birth as I I could have as a student, um, because I knew that was more the path that I wanted to go down, uh, and I was really, really fortunate. But still, I witnessed so much, um, oh, that was... uh, done unnecessarily I mean you know you talked about the fetal scalp electrodes and the inductions and the um, epidurals and the this and the that and uh, it felt super wrong and uncomfortable Um, and as I you know as the years have gone on and I've learned more and more and more um, I now fully understand why Um, but yeah what so many midwives are coming out of that training never having witnessed a physiological Mm -hmm third stage of labour, never having attended a, yeah, a, a truly physiological birth um, at all. Uh, so no wonder there's all this fear and mistrust of birth and a uh, woman's capacity to birth. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hear your sentiment around, you know, um, veterinarians would probably be better suited to uh, supporting <laughs> laboring women than um than, you know doctors or midwives perhaps a lot of them out there but um but that discounts the very real impacts that unrecognized, unprocessed um fear around birth has on a laboring woman's experience. So um you know like sure we can um Yeah, unless we've, unless we've done, unless they've done the work to unpack their conditioning uh, and their own understandings of what safe birth um, looks like, feels like, then yeah, like whoever's caring for them is going to have to navigate those undealt with fears, Um, you know, yeah, you're nodding away, you get what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I am. (laughs) I I think that's a lot. And that's, I mean, this is this, we could talk about this for 5,000 hours, but that, that right there, what you just said is a big component. I feel like in hospitals where when the care provider barges into the room and there's, there's no reading of the room, there's no, like, what do the lights look like? What is she doing? What sounds is she making? Is she in a contraction? What's the partner doing? Is there a doula? What's the doula doing? Is anyone talking? Is she in the bathroom? Like there's no, they just barge in. And that right there tells me that this care provider has no understanding of the the vulnerability of labor and birth, which does invite fear if you don't feel safe. And so when you barge into a room and you aren't taking note of what's happening, sounds, temperature, lights, all of it, you don't understand the fear that you just brought into this room that makes a cervix close up.
0: Absolutely. Which
1: means you don't understand mammalian biology or mammalian birth, which is like, why are you here? (laughs) just like, you know what I mean? Exactly.
0: The the, the physical process of birth, right? Like we talk about the uterine contractions and the cervix opening up and the baby moving down through the pelvis. We don't talk enough about the very thing that controls that, which is, is hormones and what... Um, controls those hormones, which is the mind. How safe do we feel? How much fear do we feel? So when someone is failing to progress in labor, uh, we shouldn't be saying we need to like force her uterus to start contracting more with some, um, I was going to say, syntocin. And in the States, it's of. Pitot-
1: Pitocin. Pitocin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, same thing. Same
0: thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, but we should instead be saying, "What does she need in order to mm-hmm. feel safe?" You know, I, I ask her that. What is—is is there something that is that is causing you to feel fearful at the moment? How can I support you to feel more safe? And if only we kind of really understood and respected the very important link between the mind and the body and labor my goodness would we avoid shit tons of trauma Mm -hmm. and needless interventions in birth yeah because the animals out there the you know the mammals that you're talking about they don't fear birth
1: there's none of no but if they become fearful in birth guess what they quote failure to progress and they get up and run yeah yeah. that that's why that's there. And yeah. so when you, it's the adrenaline oxytocin thing. And it's like, how do you go to however many years of medical school? And you don't understand that oxytocin and adrenaline are not friends. Yeah. They don't hang out. They're inversely proportional. So if you come barging in this room and you spike this woman's adrenaline, guess what? Her oxytocin just tanked. Guess what? Her cervix just closed. How do you not know that this is like basic, basic mammal biology, basic. Yeah.
0: It's one hundred on so, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: And instead of pitocin how about you just leave for like five hours shut the door she'll call you if she needs you we have all this cool technology she can push a button if she needs something just leave her alone we got to manage it but like you said there is no connection between mind and body in allopathic medicine like that's there's no that's the holistic Mm -hmm. stuff there's no connection that i mean it goes it's everywhere there there are countless people who have gotten rid of their cancer with their mind. Yeah. Like that's real. I know people think I'm insane when I say that, but that that's real. So whatever. And they don't understand. That, are but... and you'll <laughs> Yeah.
0: You know. You'll yeah. yeah.
1: You'll mean about it. Yeah, that's crazy. Um I did hire a midwife for my second and third babies. But literally because my husband was like I don't want to clean it up again. <laughs> <Like that's... laughs> so I found this really lovely midwife for my second baby and I hired her at like 35 weeks or something. I had like, maybe I went to one appointment, I think, pregnant with my second baby. And she was great. She sat in my bedroom, super chill. She was in, she drove down from Phoenix. Um, I did have to pay out of pocket completely because our military insurance doesn't cover CPMs. Um, she just sat in my bedroom. She just hung out at the very end. She gave me a little verbal encouragement, you know, in transition when I wanted to like jump off a cliff and she was really helpful. And that was it. She, she asked my permission to touch me she asked my permission to touch my baby like that is how it should be it's not hard absolutely yeah. most
0: importantly did, did she clean up after the birth? she did
1: she had a midwife or she had an assistant and they cleaned the whole bathroom <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was like man that was worth every penny you know <laughs> He did. He, did, I mean, he's like the best, I call him a doodler. Like he was great during mm-hmm. our first baby's birth he's crushed it all three times and he, but he did, he cleaned up the entire bathroom after our first baby plus his heart. Oh, oh God.
0: Good. <laughs> doodla.
1: <laughs> doodla. Yeah. So that's kind of like, I'm doing a lot of like, I do a lot of dad doula work with my doula clients and like, I've gotten a lot of information from him. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, what was scary to you when we had our first baby? Hey, what did you understand? What did you know? And like, really just asking him questions and So he's contributed a lot to that, but he's really great. I mean, I've seen a lot of dads, you know, at labors, it's kind of 50, 50, you know, some of them are sitting in the corner and they're like, why am I here? And then some of them are like all in, you know, I'm sure you've seen the same, but it's just personality, I guess, or where their fear level is, you know, what they're afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My first, go ahead. I was just going to
0: say, yeah, to round it off, like tell us about your food booth. Um, but if you've
1: got something to add, no, I was just going to say that the very, I did see, I did go to full prenatal care with that first baby with the CNM. And I really liked her. I mean, she was great. The, what kind of started the spiral into unassisted, I hate that label, whatever, staying home with my baby <clears throat> the first time she came in at like my, it's like my husband was already home, like 33, 34 week appointment, like pretty late. And she was like, so I'm not going to be here when you have your baby because my daughter's due around the same time. And I'm like, I feel like your daughter's due date probably hasn't changed this whole time. Like, why are we just now talking? Like I had a relationship with her, you know, and that was really important to me. I didn't want to just get whoever was on call. Like this was when I was still planning on going to the hospital. So she's like, oh, it's fine. You know, we've got these two other women. Well, I just didn't jive with the other midwives. And I remember I was at my like 39 week with that other midwife. And she's like, okay, so we've got your induction scheduled for two weeks from today. And like nobody had talked about that at all. And I was like, my induction? And she was like, yep, for your 41 weeks. And I was like, well, why are you doing that? She goes, oh, you know, just if you haven't had the baby by then. I'm like, right, but why do you need to induce me? And I I literally, I hadn't done the work and research I'd done now. And I I was literally curious and it was coming from my animal breeding. I was like, we've never induced a mare to have a foal like that. And she's like, Well, because then you'll be late. And I'm like, I mean, according to whom? Like, I literally did not understand this whole 40-week calculation. And so I said to her, I was like, you know, I have a degree in animal science. And I said, the zebras in the safari in Africa aren't like, oh, well, I'm overdue. I should go get induced. Like, they just live their life. And then one day they go into labor. And I said it just like that. And she goes, (laughs) and then it turns out she wrote that in my chart, like mocked me patient says she doesn't need an induction because the zebras in Africa don't do it or something like that. And I was like, whoa, okay, well, you don't need to be at my birth because you clearly do not understand mammalian biology. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of, that was another like push to just stay home. And, and then she yelled at me. I had the baby on a Thursday night. I think I called her on Saturday because Monday would have been my next appointment. I was like, hey, I just want to let you know the baby came. And I was like, oops, happened really fast. Like I just kind of, it was a 19 hour labor, but I just told her it happened fast. And she yelled at me on the phone. Like I actually had to hang up on her because I was two days postpartum and she was like yelling at me on the phone. I I think she thought I hired a home birth midwife and like, you know, didn't legally do what I was supposed to do with my care or whatever, but never saw her again. That was it.
0: (laughs) Well, no wonder you were not particularly eager to share about Mm -hmm. your experience uh, with the wider community. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I kept it real hush hush. And then of course we called my parents, Hey, the baby's here. My dad's like, well, you know, you're really lucky that this worked out. Okay. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And then I had a girlfriend, she brought us a meal and she was a NICU nurse back then. And she's like, wow, you know, this was really risky. You're really lucky that this worked out. And I was like, can everybody stop poo-pooing on my happy party? Like, And somebody celebrate me for being a new
0: mom and doing an amazing job of birthing my baby safely into the world.
1: But you're right, Carla. I think that's why I just stopped telling her story because that's what I would get for a long time. Anyway, I don't do that anymore, though. I just tell people they're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. But I didn't have that confidence, Yeah, you know, initially. Yeah. I was just really happy. So. Anyway. Oh, third baby. Sorry. Um, We were in a different state. I hired a CNM because my insurance covered it. Um, I really like her. Like, she and I worked together professionally she's lovely at the time she was not a mother which gave me pause um so when i went to kind of interview her have a consult initially i was probably 3 months by then and i kind of told her that i was like i'm just a little hesitant because you haven't given birth like that's a big one and so she's like well tell me about your other baby's birth so i did and she's like she's like well who am i to tell you how to give birth you've already done this twice by yourself and that was like, okay, you're hired. Like she gets it. And she she did. She, I almost didn't call her. And she's like, you better call me. And I like almost didn't call her. But it was the same thing. My husband just wanted someone to to be there to like, he just didn't want to do it all by himself. Um, and she did. She sat in the corner of my room. She videoed it. I have a video because she videoed it. She was not near me. Um but my baby was a little, she came out real fast, like fetal ejection reflex. It was a three hour labor start to finish. It was really precipitous and kind of like where you feel kind of stunned afterwards. Like I'd heard women talk about that. Like I, it was a little too fast for me. I would feel like I couldn't keep up. Like at the end the contractions, there was no breaks between them and it was just transition was really intense. Um, and so that she shot out and I was in one of those inflatable tubs, which I'd never been in before. The other two were born like just literally in my bathtub and she came out so fast. She kind of bounced off the side of the inflatable tub. So thankfully we're in that instead of a bathtub. Um, and I think I pulled her up too quick cause everything was just going really fast and she just needed a minute to adjust and you're supposed to pull them out of water a lot more slowly than I did. Um, but I was just so glad it was over. And so she just was kind of like, she was fine. She just wasn't adjusting as fast as I think my midwife felt comfortable with. And so she had me get out of the tub. And that was, it's crazy how much just that little that little moat, just getting out of the tub, really disrupted things. Like, I noticed a difference in bonding with her than my other two, and it was like, wow. If just just getting out of the tub, I was still holding her. Just getting out of the tub, was that disruptive to that mammalian imprinting? Imagine like like the C sections and the the mother baby separation for days and all that, and these women that are like, oh, I didn't have enough milk. I'm like, well, did they take your baby from you? Yeah, well. Yeah, if we took a foal out of a stall and brought it back to its mother three days later, she probably wouldn't nurse it. Honestly, mm-hmm. she might kick it. Mm-hmm. So I I felt that on such a lower level. Just I just wanted to hold her and just sit there and have that moment. And she's like, "Well, we got to get out," and she's like getting the stethoscope out and doing all these things. And I just knew instinctively like the baby was okay. And so I was a little bit irritated that that was being interrupted. Um, that was a that was a learning moment for sure for me. Like how much just little tiny things can really disrupt the process, the way it's designed to happen.
0: Were you concerned at the time about the amount of time it was taking for your daughter to, you know, start
1: breathing, come into the world? No, I knew she needed some help. So I flipped her over. I thought, well, maybe she's got some fluid because she came out so fast. You know, by then I'd been a doula for 10 years and I'd seen a lot of stuff and I knew a lot of stuff. Um, But the cord, I mean, the cord is doing what it's supposed to do. She was pink. And my first baby was born very quiet and still just like that. And she just kind of looked around. She didn't come out crying. And this one, they have similar personalities, ironically. Um, And this birth was similar to that. And I just kind of flipped her over and was patting her. But the midwife, and I get it. She's got boxes to check and litigation. And she has a responsibility to fulfill, which is why I would never want to be a midwife. That's a lot. And she need, she wanted to get a stethoscope on the baby to make sure she was okay. And she was. And as soon as we got out of the, the tub and all of that disruption happened, she was crying. She was fine. And I just wanted to get back in the tub. You know what I mean? I just wanted to like go back to that moment. I was trying to like hang on to that, that moment that like is so amazing and you only get it just for a second and it's over. Hmm. It never comes again. Hmm. So that's my only regret with that. But But other than that one moment, everything else was, you know, very undisturbed and in alignment with biology. Awesome.
0: Tell me what path you are. So you were a doula at the time, uh, during that, um, phase of your, of your life from becoming a mum um, through to, you know, you've had your third baby now. Did you continue to do doula work? Um, tell us what path your birth work took from, from there on out.
1: So I did mostly birth birth like doula birth doula support um when i lived in san diego and then in new york um i attended my last hospital birth in september of 2018 and it's a long story we don't have time for but it was unnecessary trauma and obstetric violence and caused and preventable hemorrhaging and just all that mistreatment condescending language it, it wasn't good and I just left there, just so deflated and traumatized again. I have so much secondary trauma, just from all I've witnessed, I'm sure you can relate. Um, and I just knew I was like, I can't, I can't do that anymore. I can't go to hospitals anymore. So that in 2018, I just pivoted um to home births only, which in New York State was great because CNMs attend home births there and it's normal, you know, compared to some other states in America. So I was able to do that, and I also I've been a birth photographer this whole time as well. So I was either doing birth photography for home births or doula support. Um, and then also the county just north of New York City um, is a you know higher socioeconomic community, and it's very common for them to hire postpartum doulas there because they have the resources and all their neighbors do it. So I I did a lot of postpartum support in New York, and I actually that was better when I had a baby and two other little kids. Cause I could schedule it. So I, I kind of shifted more into postpartum work over the last few years where I live now. That's not really a common thing. And people don't really have the means for that. I, I currently have a postpartum client right now who had twins. Um, but I've, I think I'm really just going to shift out of all of that. Um, something I learned is you can't guarantee that your home birth clients won't transfer. And just i I just can't go in hospitals. i I nobody needs my energy in their space in a hospital setting. I'm just I'm just done. I get really angry and I get really, just just bad energy. So I don't think I'm serving anyone pretty well there anymore. Mm-hmm. So to me, like like teaching people prenatally and prepping them, even if they're planning a hospital birth, I've done so much advocacy work, like prepping them mm-hmm. for the kind of language that's used and, you know, actual legit reasons for interventions versus not legit reasons for interventions. And I just feel like that's where I can really help and support families now without yeah. yucky, traumatized energy.
0: Yeah. Tell us about the exposing the silence, uh, project that you and Kristen Pascucci, is that how I say? Pascucci.
1: Yeah. It's Italian, Pascucci. Yeah. <laughs> She's um on. and yeah where that's at now oh my gosh so this is project is so near and dear to my heart and just with three kids and a photography business and a doula business and moving it's really got pushed to the back burner and that makes me really sad but I just wish I had like a pile of money to like throw at it and yeah. just hire people to like keep it going but Kristen got Kristen started birth monopoly the year before we launched exposing the silence project so at that time, she was still kind of getting it going. And now she's just very, very busy with it all. And she helps people, you know, legally with um, obstetric violence stuff. And she just does some education and whatnot. So her plate's just more full now, like mine, than it was when we founded it. So neither one of us can really keep up with it, even though we want to. Um, but we, that started in, uh, we left for the the maiden voyage in May of 2015. Um, I had reached out to her probably in January of 2015. I'd had a baby, June of 14, my second baby. And we moved when she was two months old. So I'd taken like six months off just trying to like get moved and settled. And I had a really hard time adjusting to two babies, way more so than one baby. Um, So I was really kind of like getting my ass kicked there for a while. Um, And I realized, I was like, Lindsay, you need like your creative outlet. Like you need to go do something else besides stay home with these kids all day because you're going to go crazy. So my husband was working like 14 hour days. It was crazy. So I reached out to her. I was like, Hey, do you need help with birth monopoly? Cause it was like, I don't even think it was a year old yet. No, it wasn't. She's like, actually, yeah. So I was kind of helping her with emails and social media and stuff like that. And I had photography or photographs she could use for her website and stuff. So then I went to a yoga class and I was like, I just want to do something like with my photography or birth trauma. And, um, I don't know if you know that project humans of New York. Yes. Yeah. Great project. It was kind of new back then, but I, Brandon, I believe is his name. He's just incredible. Like I just loved reading people's stories, right? Like, so that was kind of in my head. And then there's this other project called the Veterans Vision Project. And it was a photographer that went in and and he did, or she, he did some um, Photoshop stuff, but would take a picture of a service member in their uniform, looking all polished and perfect and, you know, saluting or something. Um, Maybe, maybe even smiling. And then there would be like this uh, imposed image of them, maybe like looking in the mirror or like another image of them in a different setting showing their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen that? It's it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I'm sure though what I'm thinking of, maybe it's not the same project, but, um, I've seen that image alongside one of like a nurse, um, looking in in and, and, you know, like different, different people and their roles and kind of the human behind the yeah the uniform
1: yeah yeah how we all present Mm -hmm. this specific appearance but that's probably not really what's going on right yeah so I saw that and I was like oh my gosh and because I I had some I don't even know if it was depression but I had some perinatal stuff after my second baby likely because we had moved and I didn't have enough support she was just a very different baby like required a lot more than my first baby and then I also had a two year old and my husband was around, a lot of factors. So there were many days I would go to the park with my kids and be like, hi, you know, how are you with my coffee and talk to somebody? But like three hours later, I'd been crying in my bed, trying to get myself out of bed. Like, oh, I got to take care of these kids today, you know? Like, so I understood like the people at the park may not realize what kind of crappy morning I just had, right? Like, and then I was like, Well, how many other moms at the park were crying on the bathroom floor this morning? Yeah. So Chris and I started talking and we we're like, How could we? Like, take a picture of them, like, with their kids, like, playing at the park or whatever it is, but then also show them, like, literally curled up on the bathroom floor crying because they're dealing with PTSD from their birth because of obstetric violence, right? Like, they're still reeling from whatever happened to them in that hospital setting. So we, like, talked about that a lot, and I was like, well, I like how humans of New York, you get, like, a snippet of the story. I was like, I feel like they need to like tell their story, like what happened. And we didn't even realize the majority of those women had never told their story in full Mm. to anyone. Mm. Some of these women had teenagers, Mm. but nobody had asked them. Nobody listened.
0: Well, you know what? Like you saying you didn't want to share your story of your quote unquote unassisted birth. Uh, (laughs) It was magical. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was magical um in the same way because of the judgments because of the what you were hearing back receiving back from people when you did try to share and in the same way people who try to share their story of traumatic birth are so often met with just be grateful focus on the positives it could have been worse you were lucky
1: at least you have a healthy baby that's the worst one Yeah. Kristen wrote a, have you read Kristen's article on that? That was around the time she wrote, um, healthy baby is not all that matters or something like that. And she literally was like, no, it's not. At least you have a healthy baby, Mm -hmm. like healthy Mm -hmm. babies don't come from unhealthy mamas, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so yeah, you're right. That's why. And Mm -hmm. a classic example of that, a woman we interviewed in Virginia had a a really horrific birth. It's Mm -hmm. too long to tell right now, but the gist of it was. She required a a reparative, is that the right word? Repairing, surgery, reparative, after her baby's birth, except that no one told her that. No one told her why she was in a four-hour surgery or what they did during the surgery. And while she was in the surgery, her husband had the baby and no one told him what was happening. For a while, he thought she was like dying. Like he didn't know. It was like months later, she had an appointment with somebody I don't remember. And they were like, no one told you what happened? And she was like, no, I don't know. And they had to like repair her perineum. It was really bad. And no one told her. Mm. So the, the she tried to talk about that early on. She had like a family member that came over to visit her, like at the house. After, I mean, the baby was a week or two old. And she was trying to piece together what had happened. You know, they knocked her out. General sees her. She doesn't remember anything. She doesn't remember meeting her baby. She's having trouble nursing, blah, blah, blah. And she tried to share what she was feeling with this family member. I think they were standing in the baby's room and there was like a pretty blanket over the baby's crib that somebody had given her. And this family member, I think it was like her aunt or something, looked down and was like, this is such a pretty blanket. Who gave this to you? Right after she like dumped her guts about what, I don't know what happened to me, just changed the dialogue completely. So by the time we met her, her baby was three years old and she'd never told the whole story. Mm. So that's what we learned during that maiden voyage was nobody was listening to these women. Most of them didn't realize that they weren't alone. They didn't realize how many other women were feeling like that. Um, So we started a Facebook group and they all got to kind of meet on Facebook and chit chat. And it was like really, really cool to watch that happen. Um, And I just love that. I wish that project didn't exist, to be honest. But it was a way of like, how can I use my camera to like help this? And there was a couple of women that pursued lawsuits, um, f- you know, from that group of women and did well. And that was, I feel like, really validating for some of the other women who did not pursue lawsuits. So it's still ongoing. I, there's just so many irons in the fire between me and Kristen that it's sort of just gotten put on the back burner, but mm.
0: it's not dead. <laughs> yeah. So how how was the the photographs and the stories, how were they... Presented or um made like accessible, I guess, you know, to um to others out there.
1: Good question. So we started with the Birth Monopoly Facebook page. And then eventually we made an exposing the silence Facebook page and Instagram, I believe. Um, we had some doula certification organizations, and then I don't know if you know Jen McClellan at Plus Size Mommy, she was great. She had she has a really big following. So she had set up our Colorado shoot. Um, so it was kind of social media mm. in the beginning. And then once we got back, I was on the road for like seven weeks. I think we did West coast, East coast. And then I came back by myself and did a couple of locations on my own without Kristen. Um, so that first voyage, I think we had 78 women total. Now there's over like 200. Um, so I finally just made a website and I did a, a gallery. So exposing the silence.com and it has a little, has all their captions, um, with their portrait. Mm. Mm.
0: yeah the shared story is so powerful and imagery is so powerful um and thank you and kristen for helping to spread the word about obstetric violence about birth trauma to um uh to normalize women's experiences in the fallout of a traumatic birth rather than shuffling it under the carpet, you know, commenting on the pretty blanket, um, reminding them that they need to be grateful for their healthy baby, Um, you know, like, yeah, changing that rhetoric so that people don't feel so isolated uh, in the experience, so that they feel validated in what they've been through, so that they know that what they experienced was not okay and And not uh, their fault it was not their fault exactly uh so yeah amazing work um yeah thank you you now run a business called birth like a mammal
1: tell us about that (laughs) I'm so excited about birth like a mammal I really am I also launched birth like a male at the same time I launched a whole new brand to my photography, which is entirely unrelated and it's so, like I'm trying to like balance it both Bye. um I just going back to what we said earlier, the number so the the rising theme out of exposing the silence project was how women were treated. That's and you probably know this. it's not the actual circumstances of the situation. You can have an actual medical emergency that requires legit obstetric intervention. That's real. It's not as real as often as our stats say it is, but it's real. Do we have life-saving stuff now that we didn't have 200 years ago? Absolutely. Do we completely overuse it and abuse it? 100%. But you can be in a bad, life-threatening situation and still come out of that without trauma because of how your care providers treated you, how they spoke to you, how they explained it to you. Like the example of the woman in Virginia, if somebody had just said, Hey, we had to repair your perineum, and that's why you're in surgery for four hours, you might have trouble bonding with your baby. How can we help you with that? Is he latching okay? Like if somebody had just done any of that, she might have a totally different experience when she went home with that baby because she was cared for and nurtured, right? Like, so. That all being said, it's it all just boils down to the lack of understanding of mammalian biology. Because if we walk into a barn when there's a horse laboring and we flip on all the lights and we start talking, she's going to freak out. She's going to think she there's a threat and she's going to stand up and if the foal is halfway out, it may die when she stands up. So we already know as as veterinary technicians, when I was an undergrad getting an animal science degree, you know, we were mentored by grad students we know we don't go in the barn and flip on the lights and start talking loudly. We don't even go in the barn. And if we need to, we like tiptoe and we're really chill, right? These big fancy barns, they have cameras in all the stalls so that there's no humans in the barn and they can watch on the camera and they're not disturbing this mayor. So like to me, the premise of it all is just like disruption, mm-hmm. just disturbing a perfectly designed process that's been happening for millions of years. And that invites the risk, which then invites the trauma right like and most of the trauma comes from obstetric violence which at its core is just disturbance mm. it's just messing with the process because we don't understand it and so many people think that their trauma is like oh well birth is just traumatic no it's not it, mm. if it was designed to be traumatic we wouldn't all be here right now mm. neither would would the horses and the and the dogs and the cats right like it's not designed to be traumatic is it difficult absolutely is it hard yes But I think it's supposed to be like, I have this theory that it's supposed to be physically laborious, mentally challenging isn't even the right word. And we need a bigger word than that. And it's supposed to be this huge, like accomplishment at the end. We're supposed to stand up like I did after I had my baby in the bathtub and be like, I remember I said to my husband, I could kill a man with my bare hands right now. Like just the, the adrenaline that came after the oxytocin. I fully believe that's there because if we were cave people, we need to feel that strong when we have a brand new helpless baby, when the bear comes in the cave, like it hasn't been that long in history that for evolution to change. And that's some, that's a whole nother conversation too. Like people don't even realize like your baby's screaming its head off when you lay it down by itself. Cause it doesn't know it's in a four-sided home with heat and air conditioning and locking doors. It has no understanding of that. Evolution has programmed this baby that it needs to be held to stay alive. Mm -hmm. It literally thinks its survival depends on being held. So, when you put it in the swing and the car seat and the carriage and the crib and all these things we do, it literally thinks its life is in danger. And you could condition that baby to give up and, like, okay, I guess I'm going to sit here. We do it all the time. But that baby's not crying to manipulate you or because it's too needy. It's just evolution from biology. We're mammals. There's no other mammals out there. They're like, oh, I'm just gonna leave my baby in this bush for the day. No, some coyote's going to come eat it. They don't do that. Anyway, the, the problem of it all is the lack of understanding of all of that stuff. So birth like a mammal to me is like the simplest way to say, hey, if we go back to aligning ourselves with mammalian biology, a lot of all of this crap that we're dealing with, birth trauma, you know, physical assault literally during labor when someone's giving an episiotomy and no one's consented to that, that's physical assault. Um, Difficulty with lactation and nursing. All of that can go away if we just go back to being mammals. Mm. It's really simple. Mm. And it just goes back to not disturbing the process of birth. Mm. So I'm gonna take all that I just said that's, you know, and I'm doing an online book and course that people can do at their own pace because like I said earlier, I, I just want to serve families. And I just, I go to bed at night. I'm like, okay, how many women today were traumatized in a labor and delivery room? You know, it just like is always with me. I can't get it out of my head. Hmm. So to me, this is like my knowledge and skill set and bandwidth that I can put into the world to try to prevent more birth trauma. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So essentially your birth like a mammal work is going to be some sort of um, an online course that people can work through to uh to help them to develop trust in their innate capacity to birth their babies um without these
1: all too common interventions yeah i think that's it is that is not knowledge is power right and like you're not going to go to a hospital a childbirth class and learn anything that's going to help you really you're not you're just yeah. going to go there and learn how to comply
0: well knowledge is power
1: but it's also
0: that knowledge is Increasing your sense of trust in yourself, which I think is is so key because it's that, that knowledge is reducing that um, that fear that we mm. have because of this culture of birth that we grow up in. You know, most of us haven't witnessed all those horses giving birth and what what <laughs> you know what is needed to protect their sense of safety in birth. Most of us have grown up hearing about the, you know, hospital births of our um, friends and families, um, and and seeing, you know, women on their backs with their legs in syrups, with doctors with masks, you know, telling them to push, 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 and you know, that's what that's what normal sounds like to most of us um, growing up, you know, in this day and age. So that knowledge. Yes, it's power. It's power because we are taking back, uh, we are unlearning the the, the wrong stuff that we have, have been, you know, been encouraged to believe as we're growing up. Um we are developing a sense of of trust in. Our birthing capabilities, um, and the more sense of trust we have, the yes, the more power we have, and also the more safe we feel, and and that sense of safety um, allows a calm nervous system, and that's what we need to like get that oxytocin flowing, right, and keep that adrenaline at bay. Um, Yeah. I, I so loved what you said about your theory around why birth is challenging. And I've talked about this on a number of my podcasts. So, um, listeners will probably have heard you say that and be like, Oh, that sounds a lot like what
1: Carla says. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect.
0: (laughs) And I guess I, the one thing I would add, like, yeah, hundred percent agree. And, um, uh, the one thing I would add is that we come out the other side of a, of an undisturbed birth, going, yeah, fuck yeah! Look at what I just did. Look at what my body is capable of. Look at what my I am capable of when I listen to my body, when I trust my instincts, when I trust my intuition. And so, yes, we are, like you said, primed to protect our our infant um, but we are also primed to trust ourselves as instinctively knowing how to mother them right not just protect them not just protect them from from the dangers but you know to to feed them to pick them up when they're crying to um, just know how to respond to their cues uh, and when when birth is disturbed um and you gave an example of a, like a very what you know pretty minimal disturbance um to the after the birth of your third child where um just those first moments were interfered with and you felt you felt a significant difference in the ability to bond with that baby and at least initially. Um, so yeah, like you said, magnify that by <laughs> the kinds of interventions that are taking place for the vast majority of births, and you know, in, in Western culture at the moment, um, and that has very, very powerful impacts on a woman's self belief around. Yep. Them being the right person, the one who sh- sh- should make decisions on behalf of their baby, so they yes. they, they come into motherhood completely lacking in self trust. My body failed; I failed at birth, so I you know now I'm failing to bond and I'm failing to breastfeed. Who am I? Like I need that. I, I need outsiders to tell me what to do. I'm terrified this this baby doesn't even feel like mine. A lot of people feel like that when they've had a a traumatic birth um you know like and shit no wonder there's so much uh, anxiety and hypervigilance and like just terror for a lot of new mothers and tears yeah but
1: (laughs) yeah 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 I love that you just said that because I that's something else I really am careful who I say that to because people think it's a judgment but I just noticed that first year of my mothering how different I mothered my baby, how easy my milk came in and I nursed my baby. Did it hurt? Yes, it hurt. I had bloody nipples two weeks in. Sucked. The first month was terrible. But it wasn't terrible enough to, for me to be like, oh, I'm not doing this. And this isn't a toot my own horn. This was a like case study in biology. I parented my baby different. I was very confident in my choices and decisions for her. For example, I have not vaccinated any of my children ever, and that we don't need to get into that, but like there was not a single person that was going to sway my decision on that. I was, I was not going to give my baby anything to drink the first six months of her life, except milk from my body. And there was nothing anyone was going to do to, and it wasn't that I was like arrogant or pompous about it. I was just, was really solid and confident in it. Like just as solid as confidence. I feel about, you know, my kids are going to stay in car seats till I feel they're safe enough to get out of them. Like stuff, it's just continued. Like you said, like what they eat, who I leave them with. Like right now, my oldest is asking me about sleepovers. I don't feel good about sleepovers. I have an instinctual like hesitation with it. And I I know now 11 years later to trust that because it's never led me astray in all of these years, all the way back to when I was laboring with her, right? Like she's like the o- the OG teacher, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, as I've gone through over a decade of mothering now and watching women, like you said, just wring their hands over stuff. And it's <laughs> this isn't a judgment. It's not their fault. The biology has been severed, and, and only because we are such cognitive beings are we able to overcome any of it. There's no other mammal species that would overcome the severance of bonding like humans do. Mm-hmm. They they just would neglect that the baby would die. That they, they would just be like, oh, yeah, you're out. I'm... Literally, a cow and a horse would kick their baby away. They wouldn't nurse them if we took them away for three days. They're not going to do it. I mean, you I, you watch it with dogs too. The one runt that gets left out and isn't latching, you know, they're having that saliva chat with the mom, whatever. So I just have, I love that you said that. Cause I feel like sometimes it's really hard to state all that, like in a factual tone that doesn't sound judgy, mm-hmm. but all of these women that are having lactation issues and nursing issues, it's because the bond was severed. Yeah. It's not because your body failed. It's not your fault. It's because you had some separation from your baby, whether it was drugs and labor, whether it was an induction, whether somebody else touched your baby before you, mm-hmm. whether you got it for six seconds, then it got whisked away, whether it went to the neck, whatever it is, yes. the mammal process didn't happen. Yeah. And you're trying to recover from that. And sometimes we can, I mean, it's incredible to me, women who have cesareans and they don't see their baby for 24 hours and then they nurse the baby for 18 months. That's incredible. That's incredible. Biology is totally stacked against them. And that is sheer mama bear willpower that got them there. And I admire that greatly. Yeah. Uh, women that pump because they have to go back to work at six weeks, which is absurd. And they pump for a year. I couldn't pump for a year. I tried. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. There's no other mammal species that would would pull that off. Like we are incredible what we can do with our, with our brains. Yeah. But also we could just stop doing all this stuff and causing all these problems for moms because we already have enough stuff to do. Yeah, but you're right. I I think that I think that confidence that comes from undisturbed birth is supposed to be there for every mother Yeah, and most don't have it Mm -hmm. because the whole thing got derailed the second they walked into the hospital. And another rabbit hole is I kind of think that's by design so that we'll keep going back to the pediatrician and outsourcing all of our Mm -hmm. what should be intuition to other people because that makes other people a lot of money that's a different topic for a different day but
0: (laughs) yeah I, I like that you commented on that that you know that trauma that occurs for a lot of women that um means that they struggled with bonding with their baby and intuitive instinctive mothering um is repairable um you know, and I want to add to that that part of that repair is learning um, about why your mm-hmm. trauma and your lack of bond was not your fault. Um, what, you know, understanding just a little bit of the physiology around that can just remove so much guilt and shame and self-doubt uh, because I think that so many new mums must come out into motherhood believing that there's something inherently wrong with them they are lacking some sort of mothering gene or like I'm just not cut out for this like my mothering experience looks nothing like those images mm-hmm. um I'm seeing on social media or the stories I'm hearing from other mothers and playgroup or whatever so there's some, must be something wrong with me and I just want every listener <laughs> To know that if you are struggling with the fallout from a traumatic birth experience, and you are struggling to bond with your baby or to breastfeed, or that you can find healing, and that healing will help to um, improve your bond with your baby, it will help to reestablish trust in yourself. It will help um, your relationship to yourself and to your partner, um, and you can't birth will absolutely be different next time with this newfound understanding that this is not your lot <laughs> and this isn't the end of your story um that yeah, that it's unfair what happened to you but um it doesn't
1: need to be like this if you were to have another baby Yeah you're so right and I I would like to point out also I think it's really helpful that when you seek, I think, I think you need other women to help you through that. Cause I mean, you're taking care of a baby and I think it's really important to find somebody who understands what you said, the physiology mm. of what happened, yeah. you know, someone who understands the disruption that occurred within yeah. the pipeline of mammalian birth. Yeah. There's a lot of therapists out there and something we learned in exposing the silence project is there's not very many therapists that understand undisturbed birth, right? Yeah. You yeah. need to find somebody who gets that, who maybe had birth trauma themselves and they worked through it. So they understand what you're feeling. Maybe they had a subsequent better birth. And so they know, oh, this, ch- these choices over here. And again, that still sounds like, oh, it's victim. You know, you made bad choices. No, you went in and entrusted people that you should be able to trust. Yeah. yeah, But they don't understand what's happening. And all of this crap that went down is not your fault, but you can make a diff- different choices next time. Mm -hmm. Um, you can, I I have like a thing I do with my clients, like questions to ask your care provider to try to figure out where their perspective or their philosophy of birth lies. And when you see some red flags, like, Nope, that's not it. Go to the next one. And then even like you said, just, just learning, we don't have to outsource birth to other people Mm -hmm. and it's fear that holds people back from having the birth I had with my first baby. Like my husband was scared, but we just learned more. Mm. And the more you learn, the more your fear is quelled, right? In any topic, not just birth. Mm. Um, And I think that, like you said, when you hit that fear head on prenatally, and then you, you get that confidence during labor and birth, then when you hit the next fear block, whatever it is, you know, your, your kid's sick there's an accident, whatever happens, you have that foundation now because you already worked through it prenatally. You got through that birth and you got that mammalian confidence you're supposed to have. And now you have all those tools in your toolkit, so to speak, to handle this next theme. Instead of just continually outsourcing your parenting, your kid's health to Mm. somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's all fear-based, but it breaks my heart that the majority of women leave birth and they don't feel the way people who leave undisturbed birth feel. And they don't even know that they don't, they don't even know. I mean, you see the woman in the store. I start sweating when I hear newborns crying in public. I just want to pick up the baby. Like I'm having like a physiological response. And this mom's just, you know, shopping, looking again, not judging her, Mm -hmm. but she is detached. Mm -hmm. I already know right away that she either had a C-section or something traumatic happened that she's that detached from her baby's cries like we're not supposed to be detached from our baby's cries. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated what you said about um to heal from a traumatic birth. It can be super helpful to find a, a someone to work with who really understands birthing physiology, who understands all of the things that we've been discussing around, you know, the mind-body connection and how trauma Um, impacts the ability to bond with our babies and all these things I think that's so key and this is what I feel is unique about the the birth trauma support work that I do and that I teach others to do so I have a, um, a training program I offer called Healing Birth Practitioner Training which is where essentially I'm training up other people who are Birth passionate people like us, um, who want to be able to help guide people in their healing journey, or help mitigate, you know, birth trauma from happening in the first place. Um, and a lot of what I teach, and a lot of what I share, and when I'm working with people one on one, is um, is about birthing physiology. Is about all the stuff that we've been talking about about mammalian birth, essentially, um, and. Yeah, like it is. It's so beautiful to see, um, or such a relief to see how many people. I I can feel. I can see the weight lifting off their shoulders when they learn that when they understand what why they struggled to bond with their baby, why they felt numb when their baby was first put on their chest or into their arms, you know, and understanding that from a physical perspective and. Teaching them what they can do, some tools to help, you know, bring on that oxytocin, to help um, develop that bond more and that sort of thing. And it's like, you know, it feels so good. We need Mm -hmm. more people who understand this stuff. If the birth trauma healing work that I do inspires you and you're interested in either pursuing a similar avenue of work for yourself, or you'd love to extend your knowledge base around birth trauma healing as an added string to your birth worker bow, you're going to want to check out the Healing Birth Practitioner Training Program that I run. The feedback from past graduates has been amazing and honestly, this aspect of my work lights me up no end, knowing that there is a growing tribe of trauma-informed, holistic birth healers out there powerfully impacting the lives of many struggling new families. If you want a taster of how I work and the sorts of topics that we deep dive into on the Healing Birth Practitioner Training Program, you can do my free Understanding Birth Trauma Basics course. It's around 6 hours of lesson recordings with a beautiful printable workbook that invites you to reflect on the lesson content. Check out the links in the show notes to learn more about my free and paid training opportunities. And yeah, and it has felt like a lot of my work for the last, I've been doing this for about 10 years now, um, has been all ambulance at the bottom of the cliff work, which is, is gutting. You know, I want to be doing more preventative stuff. This this past year, I developed a program called Soulful Birth, which I imagine is a, kind of like an online antenatal uh, series. Um, but I imagine it covers a lot of the same things that you're talking about with regards to you know, like birth like a mammal, what you're producing there. It's like helping people to um, understand how they're designed to birth and how to support that physiology. And, um, and yeah, like undoing all those conditioned beliefs around
1: mm-hmm.
0: birth being dangerous and needing to take place in a hospital. Or, yeah, that
1: sort of thing. Mm. I mean, everything you just said is why I totally stalked you on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were trying to like come up with a resource list for exposing the silence. We, and this again was back in 2015, it's better now. We had a really hard time finding therapists that understood birth trauma as its own bubble yeah from other traumas um but but the physio physiological aspect of it like it and i see this a lot you probably see this too and a lot of these postpartum support organizations they're missing the mark because they they're just addressing trauma which is good we all have trauma but like they're not addressing the fact that this was caused by the very people that were supposed to be caring for you. And it's preventable by not even birthing with those people in that system. And, and those people, most of them really believe that they're doing the right thing. And they've all been, they're doing what they were trained to do and they they think they're helping us. I don't wanna slam care providers. There are some really bad apples out there, like everything. But for the most part, those the staff at a hospital really believe that they're helping you. Mm. But often they're causing trauma and problems that otherwise wouldn't exist. One of the women in our project, this is like my favorite analogy ever. And I always like to share this. She said her like birth trauma from obstetric violence is like standing at the top of a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes behind you and pushes you down the stairs and then they run around and catch you at the bottom. Like, oh my God, thank God I was here to catch you. Yeah, It's like, well, or you could have just not pushed me down the stairs. Like that is obstetrics. Yeah. Yeah let's yeah. get you in that induction. And then, you know, 26 hours later, when you come out of the OR, Oh, good thing you're in a hospital. So we could save you in the right. OR. And it's like, yeah, but if I wasn't a hospital, I would have been induced. So yeah, that, that disconnect is there with a lot of these postpartum support groups. They don't, they're not talking about, you have trauma because of how you were treated and not cared for. Mm-hmm. It's not because you had a baby. Yeah. That's not the problem. It's it's not simply because you have an episiotomy that you're not healing very well physically from. It's all here. It's not. It's because your autonomy was taken from you. It's because you lost control. It's because somebody was overriding your sovereignty around your body and your baby. Like that's some deep stuff. Yeah. That a lot of therapists do not understand. So I think yes, can you hear heal from birth trauma? Hundred percent. You have to be with the right people though to understand that. And I love what you're doing, Carla. I think it's really important that we teach other people how to do that. Um, part of Birth Like a Mammal is a podcast and I talk about that a lot. And you know, maybe some some point down the road I'll teach people how to do that too. But it, it's very important that you just like it's very important who you choose to be at your birth, if that didn't go well, it's very important who you choose to help you heal from yeah. that birth. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of these
0: interventions that we know, that you know, the rates keep going up and up, and yet the rates of infant, you know, mortality and morbidity are staying very stable. They are done; those interventions, those countless, you know, um, inductions of labour or cesarean sections or, you know, operative deliveries they are done in the name of safety they are done because people are led to believe that they need to have those interventions in order to have a safe outcome for their baby Mm -hmm. these things are not improving safety outcomes and if we look at the safety from a holistic perspective rather than just like a they're alive or dead they have you know physically poor outcomes or physically good outcomes, um, but the holistic sense of safety, which includes emotional, psychological, you know, spiritual well-being, um, then I would say that these interventions that are done in the name of safety are causing a shit ton of harm, a shit ton of needless harm. Um, and you described that perfectly, you know, somebody pushes somebody from the top of the stairs and then runs down the bottom and says, just as well, I was here to catch you, you know, like if you had not touched me in the first place. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm sick of this narrative that people are leaving the birth space with, which says I had to have my baby rescued from my faulty body. Like, I am sick of it. It is it is just the furthest thing from the truth. And if they were if true informed consent was respected and honored, like, you know, that legally it should be. Um, then people would know the true risks. Of inducing their labor, just like they know the risks of not inducing, those are those are always spelt out loud and clear and often kind of exaggerated. Um, but I have yet to have worked with somebody who had um you know the the entirety of risks associated with an induction of labor um, spelt out to them before they agreed totally. to their induction. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, no one. No one comes in as like, just so you know, this induction raises your chance of a cesarean by 300%. No one says that, but it's 300%. You are three times more likely to have a cesarean if you have an induction that's elective and unnecessary.
0: Yeah. yeah, Yeah, And nobody says, you know, uh, you're likely to have more problems bonding with your baby. You are likely to have, um, you know, postpartum anxiety. Um, You are <laughs> likely to struggle more with breastfeeding mm-hmm. like these things matter the leading cause of maternal deaths in a lot of parts of the world is suicide we are not mm-hmm. appreciating the importance of mental well-being for new mums uh and you know the this lack of appreciation for our ability to birth as the mammals we are <laughs> um is is causing a lot of uh yeah a lot of this mental ill health um and that has very very real
1: consequences uh mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of layers i mean even just no one i shouldn't say no one most people don't know a repeat cesarean is actually more risky than a v-back yeah, right. in most cases, yeah, if you yeah. need stats on that, my girl Jen at VbackFacts.com has all kinds of stats. I did her course years ago. Yeah. But no one, no one talks about placenta accretia, you know, mm-hmm. that comes from repeat C sections and how that's actually way more risky and potentially fatal than a VBAC. Yeah. And then, you know, you go in for the VBAC, like, oh, we got to assess your VBACs. No, you don't. You don't need to do all that. That's not a thing. And then you were saying earlier, like, all the things they do at least in America, because we're very litigation happy in this country, it's highly annoying. The majority of the decisions that OBs are making in hospitals are not based in science or health. Mm -hmm. They are based on an insurance policy and previous litigation. So if you take a woman to the OR and perform a cesarean, if she comes back and sues you for whatever, fill in the blank, when you're in court with the judge, if you did a cesarean, you quote, did all you can do. Yeah, you're good. Listen, my dad's a doctor. These people are real people. They have families. They got bills to pay. They got a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I can see why these care providers get backed into a corner that they may not even want to be in. And they're doing procedures and making decisions they may not fully believe in. And they also may know it is not based in science or health, but they're stuck because of their hospital insurance policy, their own, you know, malpractice policy it's so there's a that's a whole other conversation topic. is like yeah. a lot of the stuff we're doing in hospitals it's it's about litigation yeah. it's not about moms or babies at all yeah that's a that's a huge problem and mm. then we in America I haven't looked up the stats for New Zealand lately but we have a rising maternal mortality rate mm. rising mm. I mean that alone is like maybe we should all pause and see what's going on with obstetrics if our maternal mortality rate is rising and then it's like three or four times worse for Black women, too. And it's like, mm-hmm. hello, should we all push pause and maybe talk about this? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah, so many well, layers.
0: You and I could, we could talk all day, all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we need to wind this up. And I, I feel like a, I agree. A, a good note to finish on might just be um, you offering your thoughts around um, what people can be doing who are pregnant and wanting to set themselves up for, you know, a positive, empowering birth experience where they enter motherhood with that, fuck yeah, <laughs> made for this sort of a mentality.
1: Well, first and foremost, you should probably listen to Carla's podcast and my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but truly, um, doing some prenatal birth prep from somebody who understands mammalian biology, undisturbed birth, physiological birth, whatever you want to call it. That's and that's what my my birth prep course is. It's it's based on how this is supposed to go as dictated by biology, millions of years of biology. That's step 1 is learn all of this while you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. So you like learn how your baby comes down your pelvis. When do they turn? Why do they turn? What is your pelvis doing during those moments? What positions positions should you be in to facilitate this perfectly designed process? The animals already all know how to do it. The ancient humans all knew how to do it because their grandmother and their aunt and their mom showed them or they watched it or whatever. That's step one is understand what's happening in your body and understand how your hormones relate to that. Like learn about oxytocin, learn about adrenaline. Like those, that's all part of my birth prep workbook because I talk about the oxytocin adrenaline balance. And then secondly, the the single most important decision any woman will make during her pregnancy is who she chooses as her care provider. That is the most important decision you will make. And maybe the choice is to choose nobody. That was was what it was for me. That was the best choice for me. That's not true for everybody, but who you choose to be in your birth space, even down to your mom and your, you know, maybe you have a toxic relationship with your baby's dad, whatever, your sister's a train wreck and she wants to be there. Like, every single person who's in your birthing space is going to drastically affect what happens during your labor as i shared earlier i truly believe that myself my brother my parents and my sisters in laws greatly disturbed her labor with her first baby and it may have not been 49 hours long had we not been there she mm. agrees by the way mm. so that's that's the most important and i i have a if you need it shoot me an email, join at birthlikeamammal.com. I have a PDF top five questions to ask your care provider. Google it. Even if you don't use mine, just look up. There's other doulas that have, you know, basic, good, solid questions to get an understanding of your care provider's philosophy. And then thirdly, I didn't used to say this, Carla, but I do now, don't have a baby in a hospital. I mean, really just don't. And if that sounds scary and you're like, oh, this lady's crazy, like sit in that. Why? Why do you think I'm crazy? Why does that scare you? Mm-hmm. What, what about that is like, oh, nope, not doing that. Like I used to be that person. I used to think people who gave birth out of a hospital were insane. And then I learned some stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Read or watch the business of being born. Like that was a big one for me. Um, I, I really feel that in, unless you are the rare two to five percent of women that truly need some obstetric help to have a baby why are, there's no reason for you to be there? There are tons of midwives everywhere that are more well-trained than most OBs. They've seen mammalian birth. They're 75 years old and they've been doing this for 50 years and they know more about breech babies, twins, v all of it than any OB you're going to find. They are way more knowledgeable. So th- those are like the three big ones. Like do your work ahead of time, learn about physiology of birth, Get real choosy about who you choose to be in your birth space, especially your care provider, and strongly consider not entering a hospital to bring yeah. your baby into the world. Yes.
0: And I wanna, I love those. All of them,
1: yeah, uh totally
0: hitting the nail for for me. Um, what I want to add is if you have any residual trauma from a previous birth experience, to address that as well. Yeah to get good healing you deserve from that. Because there will be, your body will, uh, you know, it's primed for survival and it will want to prevent you from re-experiencing that trauma. So there will be a lot of fear and uh, helping unpack your story will help to put back fear in its place. It will help to um, get some
1: perspective around that. That is an excellent addition and very valid point. Yes. Yeah
0: awesome this has been amazing i've loved this chat so much and i'm already excited you've invited me to come and speak on your podcast yes um there's like a mammal podcast so i'm yeah i'm already amped for getting together i again. think i'm
1: gonna have to buy a, a plane ticket to new zealand just so we can have coffee oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yes yes
1: please <laughs> i actually had a uh, fifth grade science teacher a thousand years ago who had had been to new zealand some years before he was my teacher like it was kind of a recent trip And he never shut up about it. He was like, if you ever go anywhere in your life, go to New Zealand. He's always, I just remember that. He always talked about it. Yeah,
0: that that is a beautiful spot. And yep, there's a, you know, a spare bed at my house. If you're ever coming to stay, (laughs) Lindsay, that would be amazing. (laughs)
1: Definitely. That would be amazing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for today. I've really, really appreciated. Uh, your wisdom, your sharing, um, and the work that you're doing. And for any listeners who want to find out more about what Lindsay's doing, um, to follow her work, there there are links in the show notes, and yeah, look her up
1: for sure. Likewise, Carla, I really, really, really applaud what you're doing as well, much needed. If you enjoyed that episode, please spread the love by sharing this
0: podcast with others and ensuring you subscribe and hit that five-star review. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can get hold of me via Instagram at healing.birth and through my website, healingbirth.co.nz. I would love to hear from you, whether that's so you can share feedback or suggestions or because you're potentially interested in healing with me, or training with me to become a healing birth practitioner. Let's do it. Aroha nui, you beautiful people.